This morning, our memory scripture that we are working on together uh, here during this sermon series is actually the text for our sermon. And so I'm going to ask you to stand and we will read it together. Uh, It is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come this morning to your word, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would open our hearts to receive what we hear, and that your spirit might stir our hands and our feet, that we might walk in obedience, worshiping and serving as a result of what we hear. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. So this morning, we are talking about the main thing, and no, it's not college football, although that's become a main thing, maybe, but the main thing in the gospel uh, or in the epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. It was in 1961 that the legendary football coach, Vince Lombardi, on the heels of a disappointing loss by the Packers to the Philadelphia Eagles in the championship the year before. They all showed up in July for, for a training camp. And he entered the room and everybody wondered, well, what would coach say? Building on last year's success and moving forward, what would be his message to this team of professional football players and athletes? And he entered the room, and infamously, as maybe some of you already know, he walked in and held up a football, and he said, this is a football. And then they opened up their playbook, their training camp folders, and and it went back to the very beginning, and it talked about the fundamentals, how to tackle, how to throw a ball, how to catch a ball. It was almost insulting because these were professional football players, to go back and talk about such rudimentary things. And yet that's what uh, Lombardi became famous for, was harping on the fundamentals, harping on the foundational things, getting back to the basics and not moving beyond them. The Packers would go on to win five of the next championships. Thus, solidifying Lombardi's name in football folklore. Vince Lombardi talked about football, which is just a game. It's not a really important thing. Uh, It's not as important as many of us think it is. But this morning, we're talking about things that are of eternal significance and importance, things that are far, far more important uh, than a, a game. And like Lombardi's lesson to his players, we never outgrow and move past 
the fundamentals of the gospel. And that's what Paul gets back to in these two verses. He gets back to what some have called the thesis statement of the epistle, the, the whole point summed up for us. The, the rest of Paul's letter will be an unpacking of the things that he talks about here in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And so to give you an idea of where we're going, we're going to talk about the main thing, the gospel. And then we're going to talk about the main thing about the main thing, the power of God. And then we'll talk about the main thing about the main thing about the main thing, faith. And then we'll lastly talk about the main thing about the main thing about the main thing about that main thing, the righteousness of God. And if we can understand with clarity these four truths, and we can understand how they relate to one another, then we will understand the entirety of the gospel that was so central to Paul and to the life of the church of God. So the main thing, the main thing is the gospel. The word literally is a composite word of two, euangelion, or good message. Paul's already talked about the gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. He's, he's told us some things about it. He's told us that there's a, a continuity between uh, the Old Testament and the New, that, that the gospel is not a New Testament idea, and that it was spoken of in the prophets, and it was seen in the Old He's told us already that it's concerning His Son. Uh, that the focal point of the gospel message is that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of Christ. Who He is and what He's done. And He's already told us that the gospel has something to do with the resurrection. That it's concerning the resurrection of the Son. Now, He adds to these things and He says that the gospel relates to salvation. Literally, the word means to deliver something, to, to rescue. We're not yet seeing what it is that we're rescued from. That's coming next week, uh, where, where he will unpack sin and, and what sin has done to all of mankind. But we are rescued or delivered from sin. That is the good news. Essentially, from 118 from the wrath of God all the way up until the declaration in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. He's speaking about how God has delivered us from sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. The good news. We're delivered from sin, from its penalty. That's what Paul will speak about in Romans 6.23. He'll say that the wages of sin is death that we have a penalty looming over us of condemnation and death, and that the gospel is good news of deliverance from that penalty. And he will also tell us that the gospel is good news of deliverance from the power of sin. In Paul's writing in Romans 7, where he talks about the, the battle in his flesh with sin, he will make a declaration that sin dwells in me. The gospel is good news of deliverance from the sin that dwells in us, the power of sin. And then lastly, it's, 
even deliverance from the very presence of sin. In Romans 16, 20, where uh, this declaration is made that God will crush Satan under your feet. That he will defeat his and our enemy through the gospel. And so the gospel is good news of deliverance. Deliverance from the penalty of sin, death, from the power of sin to enslave us, and from the very presence of sin one day when Christ returns and crushes Satan. It's a deliverance from the death brought about, from the defilement of sin, from the deception of it, and from the destruction that it brings. This was Paul's gospel. And Paul would begin to unpack this message of deliverance. But the gospel then is also, we're told, it is the power of God. Notice it's not just a demonstration of the power of God. It is or is equal to the power of God. It's not simply a nice message. It's not simply a truthful message. It's not merely a helpful message. But rather it is a powerful message. It is a a message that contains in it the very power of God. Paul's already spoken of the power of God in relation to creation, and he will soon speak about the power of God in its relation, um, in its relation to the resurrection. And, and the picture here is that God's power in both of those illustrations pertains to the bringing of, of something out of nothing, of life out of death. The gospel is the power of God, to bring something out of nothing, to bring life out of death. On Thursday, I had the opportunity to be a part of the public reading of Scripture down on the campus of LU, Uh, a student-organized event, and uh, I would say maybe 200 students gathered, and we read the entirety of the book of Acts from beginning to end in one sitting. And as we were reading the book of Acts, it just dawned on me that it is the story of the power of God working through the gospel in the first century. And and there were times where we were reading, and and I only read two chapters, so most of it I was just listening, and, and there were times where it just overwhelmed me the unstoppable power of the simple message of the gospel. And there were several times in the reading where the gospel would, would be victorious over a city or over a person. And there was sort of an audible, um, a, an audible cheerful rumble amongst the students during the reading. It was almost like in a football game. The touchdown was scored and the, and the crowd erupted. And it was in the midst of the reading, these, these celebrations as the gospel went out into the world. The gospel is the power of God. Now, there are many false representations of the gospel. There's a gospel of religion that says, I'm, I'm not like all other sinners. I'm more pious. I'll be okay. There's a gospel of intention that I, want, I will do better. I, will, I, will, I can fix this. 
There's a gospel of liberalism that says, God accepts you as you are, don't worry about it. There's a gospel of hedonism that says, just pursue what feels good. If it feels good, it can't be wrong. And none of those are powerful messages that bring about a deliverance from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. Now, God, Paul knew the power of the gospel firsthand. His own testimony speaks of it. Paul would write to Timothy, his son in the faith, in 1 Timothy 1, and he would write this, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, to deliver powerfully sinners of whom I'm the foremost. He knew what it meant to see the power of God envelop and enter and overcome a sin-sick man. And he knew the power of the gospel to bring about a new creation. You think about how the gospel has worked in the lives of people as we see them even in the gospel. There's the blasphemer like Paul. There's the adulterous woman at the well. There's the extortionist named Zacchaeus. There's simple, uneducated fishermen like Peter and John. And, and every time the gospel was proclaimed, it was not simply just an informational distribution. But there was change. There was a transformation to the very core of who these people were. Now, you know, the gospel, though, doesn't always look powerful, does it? It doesn't always appear that way. Paul would say that the gospel to some would appear foolish. It would appear like folly. It would appear uneducated. It would appear arrogant. And he would say that it appears those ways to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, every time the gospel was proclaimed, it just has this inherent effect of dividing people into those who see it as folly and those who see it as the power of God. In the second century, there was a Greek philosopher named Celsus, and he was no friend of the church. And he would write the following. He wrote, Let no cultured person draw near to Christianity, none wise, none sensible, for all that kind of thing we count as evil. If, a man, if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense or culture, if any is a fool, then let him come boldly to Christianity. For Christians worship a dead man. And he would mock. And he would not see the gospel as a powerful message. Celsus was wrong, though. You see, the reason Celsus was wrong is that Christians don't worship a dead man. They worship a dead man who rose again on the third day. And who ascended into heaven. And who is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father and who one day will come again to judge the living and the dead. And who they can bear testimony to is able to change the lives of sinners. Breaking the chains of the power of sin. Bringing freedom by forgiveness of sins. So the gospel is the power of God. But how does the power of God deliver us from sin? How does it do that? 
Let me give you the answer and then the explanation. Because we have to fill in a little bit here. And Paul will fill this in eventually when he, when he speaks of this and unpacks this more throughout the epistle. I'm going to give you the answer. And the answer is this, that the gospel is the power of God that delivers us from sin because it makes us alive in Christ. It makes us alive in Christ. To get the context of this, we have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis where God in the garden spoke to Adam and Eve and He declared to them that if they walked in obedience, they would live, but if they ate of the forbidden tree and disobeyed God, that the result would be death. He said, you shall surely die. And we know that they did eat, but they didn't just keel over and die. But they did die. Physically, they began to die that day. But even more significantly, spiritually, they died. They died in their relationship to God. They died in their ability to know God. Suddenly, they hid from God in the garden. They had lost their knowledge of God being the one that no one could hide from. And so they began to die, and they died spiritually. Paul will pick this up in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, where he speaks about this more clearly. He says in Ephesians 2.1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Dead in your sins. This is a teaching that's lost on, on many today, and even in many churches it's lost. We don't believe that we're really truly dead. We might say, well, we're drowning in sin, and then the picture is of God rescuing us by, by throwing forth a life ring to us and, and beckoning us to reach out and to grab the, the life ring that He might drag us to the side of the pool and, and be our Savior. And so we're not really dead. We're drowning in sin. But the Scriptures don't say that. They say we are dead in sin. We are at the bottom of the pool. That there is no life in us and that we are unable to do anything that would lead to our salvation and deliverance from sin. But Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 and says, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. That phrase is what describes the power of God in the gospel. It's the power that makes alive a dead sinner. See, the gospel doesn't simply call good people to be better people. It calls dead people to be living people. And then he calls them forth. So he makes them alive, and then he calls them forth. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. He calls them out in faith, but the, the very faith that they exhibit is, is, is the fruit of the life that He has given them. Jesus gave a great demonstration of this truth, a living, vivid demonstration of this truth in John chapter 11, when He raised His friend Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus was dead. He'd been in the grave for four days. 
He was dead. And Jesus, though, made him alive. And then he called Lazarus forth from the grave. The part that we don't see is the power of God was working in the tomb, unseen by the crowds. The the crowd saw Jesus, they saw the tomb closed, they saw Lazarus dead, they saw him come out of the tomb, they saw him walk out in obedience to Christ's command. But what they didn't see was the power of God that made Lazarus alive so that he might hear the voice of Christ and might obey and come forth. And when we talk about the power of God, it's to make us alive that we might embrace Christ by faith. I remember as a student uh, in seminary, I took, a, I, I took a class through the church that I was interning at, and it was Evangelism Explosion. Maybe you've heard of it. D. James Kennedy uh, developed it, and it was a, an evangelistic training. And so I had a good friend of mine, Tim, uh, Tim Hanley, who taught a group of us, about six or seven of us, to, to share the gospel uh, and to be more intentional about that and more equipped for it. I'll never forget, though, one assignment he gave us. He drove us five minutes down the road from the church. We were like, where are we going? He says, we're going to go share the gospel. Okay, great. We're driving down the church, and then he hung a left turn into a cemetery. He drove us into the middle of the cemetery and then said, pick any headstone you want and preach the gospel to it. Preach the gospel to that person. Bit of an odd assignment, isn't it? And so we did. We got out of the car. We walked, picked a headstone. I cannot remember for the life of me the name of the person. And for five minutes, I preached the gospel to this headstone. And, and Tim's point in all of that was this, that that. We are called to be faithful witnesses to the gospel, to proclaim that God has dealt with the penalty, power, and presence of sin in Christ. And and we are to declare it with a confidence that it's the power of God that will change a person, not our words or our presentation. That as Lazarus was dead in the grave, it takes a work of God's infinite power to bring life. That leads to faith. Yes, we're looking for the person to receive Christ in faith, but when we began afterwards to go out and actually talk to living people, it, it was always imprinted on my mind that they're spiritually dead and that they, you know, a work of God needed to be done in the heart if that was change. So the gospel is the power of God making us alive, which we see evidenced in faith. How does the gospel, though, address our sin? How, do, how does it deal with that which has caused us death? And that's where this phrase, the righteousness of God, is. The righteousness of God. This word has so much written about it. And we could, we could talk about it for a long time, but I want to try to narrow it down for us and simply say that, the, that righteousness is a judicial verdict of approval. It's a declaration of approval by God. It was definitely an important 
concept of Paul. It's used over 60 times in the epistle to the Romans. And Paul probably sums it up better than anybody else can. He will come back to this point at the end of uh, chapter 3 and unfold it. He's going to, from 18, verse 18 to the middle of chapter 3, he's going to talk about sin and, and, and the context of everyone being dead in sin. But then he's going to begin in chapter 3, verses 21 and following, to talk about righteousness and how that's significant. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3, 21 and following. But now the righteousness of God, God's verdict of approval, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you hear the parallels there? There's no distinction. He'll say in 1, 16, 17, there's no, uh, it's for the Jew and the Gentile. There's no distinction. And that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Let me paraphrase this. The verdict of God has been rendered, and it is no, a verdict of God has been rendered that is no longer dependent on the law. It is no longer based on what we do or do not do, which is good news because we have all sinned and are condemned by the law of not living up to God's glory. This verdict is received by faith in Jesus, and it's offered to us as a gift. We do nothing to merit it. It is provided through the sinless life and the sacrificial death of Christ. That's that word propitiation. It satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus kept the law and He earned it for us. And He died in our place presenting that life in His sacrifice before God. Will you receive it by faith? Paul also would sum up this teaching in a, in a wonderful way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where he would say that it was for our sake that he made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become by faith in Christ and what he has done. Paul would go on in Romans 4 and declare that the way that this happens is that God counts it to us. He uses Abraham as the example. And he'll say that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. That God took his faith and credited it to his account the righteousness of Christ. That's how God deals with our sin. By taking Christ's perfect record and making it and declaring it ours. And here Paul says that he reveals this to us. There are a couple other quick points you should note in this passage. That the gospel, Christ died for you that you might live in Him. There's an exclusivity here to faith. That's where the quote from Habakkuk 2.4 comes in. The righteous shall live by faith. The declaration there is that the righteous shall live only by faith. That there is only one way to be made alive. And then there's this phrase of from faith to faith, or literally out of faith and into faith, meaning it's wholly of faith. It's from faith in the beginning to faith in the end. 
we never move past our need for Christ and His finished work. The Christian never outgrows Christ. We never move beyond the basic playbook of this is tackling, this is passing, this is. These are the fundamentals and we camp on them. And there's an accessibility of faith here to everyone who believes. Let me close with this. Paul began these verses by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There are some things to be ashamed of, perhaps. The gospel message for repentance and holiness and the expectation of God for a godly life, they were countercultural ideas. And so they were ridiculed. The message of a crucified Savior sounded weak and foolish. The declaration that Jesus rose from the dead by many seemed absurd. There were some things to be ashamed of. And shame would tend to make one afraid to speak of the gospel. Afraid because of our focus on ourselves and our self-preservation. Being ashamed would also tempt one to change the gospel. To soften it. To to take away the things that are offensive and and to highlight uh, the happy parts, the the parts of the gospel that are worthy to be cross-stitched on a pillow, the easy parts. It may also be that shame makes us sort of complacent or quiet. I think of Paul's example in his life. He was laughed at in Athens. He was reviled in Corinth. He would be rioted in the Ephesus, stoned and left for dead in Galatia, chased out of Thessaloniki, imprisoned and beaten in Philippi, smuggled out a window in Berea, mobbed and almost assassinated in Jerusalem. And yet Paul says, I was not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. But I don't think that's the whole of what this statement means. It's certainly part of it, but it's a form of speech here where I think what it's saying is it's understating the fact. It's saying this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, I'm not even close to being ashamed of the gospel. I'm actually proud of the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel. Far from being ashamed, Paul was proud of the gospel. I remember when my boys played football, there was this uh, mama, and she was proud of her son because we and I know she was proud of her son because every game we heard it she would stand up and hoot and holler at her boy and and cheer him on and uh, and it was it was somewhat almost an embarrassment but it was actually kind of fun and, and, and it was almost special to hear her do that I'm not like that I'm a little more ashamed to do that a little more fearful to stand up and make that scene. Uh, though I would, if you'd ask me, so Tony, are you telling me you're ashamed of your boys playing football? I'd be like, no, I'm not ashamed of my boys. I'm just scared to stand up and declare it. I, I would rather sit. I think Paul here is saying that he had no problem. He was proud of the gospel. So rather than uh, asking this question, are you ashamed of the gospel, not sharing it, I think the better question to ask here is, Are you proud of the gospel? Are you compelled by the love of Christ 
to share in. Paul was a man. He seemed sometimes like he was more than that when I read the list of things that he endured and suffered for the gospel. But he prayed. He asked the churches, actually, to pray for him for several things. He asked them to pray for him for boldness because he knew he was fearful. He asked them to pray for clarity because he knew that he might be tempted to dilute and and change the message. He asked them to pray for open doors because he knew his own limitations. He, He knew that he might enter a city and preach, but he couldn't change a single heart. And he asked them to pray also for his deliverance because he also knew that when he proclaimed the gospel that it would result in some people not liking him and being offended and even persecuting him for it. So he prayed for boldness and for clarity of the message, for open doors and for deliverance. That's a great place for us to start today in becoming proud of the gospel or the power of God, which delivers men from sin as God uses it to make them alive, calling them out by faith that they might embrace and claim His righteousness as theirs. Will you pray with me? Father, You have called us to be Your church and to proclaim this marvelous message. And Father, might we truly grow in our admiration of it, both because we see what it's done in our own lives, and may we taste and see the power of the gospel in the lives of others. Who can change the leopard spots? Who can change an Ethiopian skin? You can. I pray that you would enlarge our confidence in you, that you would equip us with a clear understanding of what the gospel message is. And Father, that you might open up doors into our community, into our families, into relationships we have at the soccer field, into people that we work with and see, and to clients and those we come across in our days. Father, that you would give us a boldness and an eagerness to share Christ crucified to declare Him and to call people to believe in Him. Father, that You would open the hearts of those we speak with and that You would protect us, watch over us, and deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.